Get ready to rumble. Shilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Thomas J. DiLorenzo, an economist and a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. Best-selling author. The brand new book is The Politically Incorrect Guide to Economics. And Tom, welcome to The Shilling Show Unleashed. Glad to be back with you. I want to start off with this because it's very important. There are various economic schools that you discuss in the beginning of the book. And maybe you could tell us where you're coming from and then perhaps uh, one of the opposite minds of schools. In the introductory chapter, I talk about how the American Economic Association, the economics profession as a profession, which was started in the 1880s, uh, was very uh, interventionist and even socialistic. It, it condemned laissez-faire and capitalism, and and recommended more government uh, intervention, and and so and that's been sort of the majority. And then we have the uh, the Keynesian Revolution of the 1930s in the economics profession, named after John Maynard Keynes, spelled K-E-Y-N-E-S, a British famous British economist. that advocated sort of a, uh, an American version of central planning. You know, they had central planning by the government in, in the Russia socialism. This wasn't outright socialism, but it was government planning, nevertheless. And that sort of took the day. That's the, the economic profession became very interventionist. And and I write that there always was a remnant, however. And this remnant, one of it was organized by Friedrich Hayek, Nobel Prize winning economist. And he was a, an Austrian, but he came to America and he taught at the University of Chicago for many years. And so I explain how this remnant of basically free market economists got together and has always been out there in the, in the intellectual battle between capitalism and socialism and many other issues. And there are a couple of different schools of thought. And uh, Hayek himself was a student of Ludwig von Mises, who was probably the most famous European critic of socialism in the 20th century and defender of capitalism. And he wrote a, a great treatise called Human Action, He's quite the scholar, but Hayek is his most famous student, and it's called the Austrian School of Economics. It's a free market school of economics that explains in great detail why markets work and governments rarely do. Closely uh, aligned to that is the so-called Chicago School, mostly associated with the late Milton Friedman, because uh, he had a, he wrote a famous book with his wife in 1980 called Free to Choose, and that made them really popular. And he also had a column in Newsweek magazine back in the 60s and 70s. And so he was very successful in putting his views out there. So that's the Chicago School, the Austrian School. And then even though this is a Charlottesville station, I might lose some of your listeners. And I'm a, I'm a Virginia Tech alum. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, I, and I was educated in what's called the public choice school. My, my, one of my professors, the late James Buchanan, won the Nobel Prize in 1986. And this is basically... Uh, uh, using economic analysis, basically the study of economic incentives to understand how government works. 
not markets and supply and demand necessarily and all that, but how decisions are made by politicians, government bureaucrats, voting, uh, you know, interest group politics and all political science topics, but they're analyzed with economic methods and economic theory. And so, and that has come up with a whole theory in, in the field of economics of government failure, explaining why it is that government fails so often. And, uh, and I even have a, a quip that I put in the book that in government, failure is success because the worse the kids do in school, for example, the more money we give the public schools. Mm-hmm. The, the worse poverty gets, the, the more money we give the poverty agencies. So unlike the market, where if, you're, if your product is, is a failure, you lose money. But in government, if you fail, you make money. You get bigger budget, bigger pay raises, more bonuses, uh, more, more bigger staff, you know, and, and so forth. That's a short capsule of uh, the three schools of thought. I'd like to go to antitrust laws, which you spend a lot of time on. And this is such a difficult one. The reason I say it's difficult, Tom, is because so many people have been conditioned to believe that the government's actions in breaking up so-called monopolies are a good thing and need to continue. Would you uh, dispel that, please? Monopoly is always created by government. In the free market, if you make an exceptional money for whatever reason, you're the first one to get there and nobody else has a product like yours and everybody loves your product you will very quickly have competition from all over the planet. And and the capital markets, the the financial markets, they will find a way to finance this because there's money in it for them. And and that's how competition works. And historically, what what, uh, businesses have done who have failed to have a monopoly, even though they might conspire to fix prices, for example, they might, it's illegal, but they might get together and, you know, let's let's all uh, charge double what everybody's charging now. That never works because eventually somebody will cheat and it will break one of the 10 of them will give secret rebates and then that will get the news will get out and then everybody will do that and it never works. And so they, what they do then is they, they turn to government to get some sort of regulation or a law passed that creates monopoly. And, and antitrust is like that. And then my own research has been published in academic journals shows that the, the original antitrust law was called the Sherman Antitrust Act, named after Senator John Sherman of Ohio, who, by the way, was uh, General Sherman's brother and the Civil War general. The, my research shows that the companies that were accused of being monopoly had been cutting their prices for 10 years and expanding production and creating new products for, for 10 years. And 10 years after that, this is the year 1890, and 10 years after that, so these are the, the most dynamic, price-cutting, growing, hiring people, companies in America, and they were targeted by their loser, poor loser competitors who lobbied Congress to pass a law to do something about this. So from the very beginning, uh, antitrust regulation has been a source of monopoly, a protectionist law, not the solution. And I also, in my book, I have little boxes that says a book you're not supposed mm-hmm. to read, to recommend you know, recommended readings. And one of them is Antitrust and Monopoly by Dominic Armentano. And he surveyed the 55 most famous federal antitrust cases. And he found that in every single case, the companies being sued were expanding production, cutting prices, creating new products and innovating Every single one, none of them was, was harming consumers by raising prices or, or, or doing any of these other bad things that they're, they're accused of doing. And that's the history. But the politicians write the opposite. They write, they tell us 
that it's the civil society that is rotten. It's it's uh, your neighbor who who runs the dry cleaning business. He's a greedy capitalist, and he's a monopolist. You know, he's and we're going to do something about that, and we the politicians will fix this. And uh, the opposite is true. You know, government has always been the source of monopoly. There are two specific things I want to address under this umbrella of antitrust laws. And these are concerns that people have. Number one is underpricing to drive competitors out of business. And the other one would be foreign, quote unquote, dumping to drive out uh, domestic producers. And, and you address both of them very well. Oh, yeah. I call it the Rodney Dangerfield of economic theory for the old timers like me who remember who Rodney Dangerfield was yeah. a comedian. They, he always say, I get no respect. And then he was, his jokes were about why he gets no respect. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, this is an old theory that was debunked a long time ago, but it's sort of popular folklore that the way to get a monopoly is to cut your prices really, really low, even below your cost and lose money on purpose by a, by a big company that can do that. It has already has a, said to have a war chest of profits. And so, and then you'll drive everybody out of the market. And then once they're gone, then you can, the sky's the limit. And I used to teach MBA classes at Loyola university in Baltimore. And, uh, and I would ask, you know, we would, they would read about this. And I, and I had a lot of engineers in my class from Black and Decker and in the other places in Baltimore. And I asked them, what if you went to work on Monday, this is a Saturday class, and told your boss, here's what I learned in MBA class over the weekend. And these drills that we were going to selling at Black and Decker cost us, say, $75 to make one of them. But we should start charging 20 bucks. And it might take five, six, seven years, but we can drive all the other drill manufacturers out of the market, and then we can charge two hundred dollars. And and all of these these uh, people would just laugh and snicker and say, "Well, first of all, they would no longer pay my tuition, and I might even lose my job if they thought I was that silly to believe something like this." And yet, that is the theory of what's called predatory pricing. That, that this can happen. And uh, I've, I've published a paper on this called The Myth of Predatory Pricing. It's on the web if anybody's nerdy enough to be interested in this. One of the things I concluded is that the, the government has, has never proven ever that anybody created even one monopoly ever by this method because it, it seems it's foolish. Even John D. Rockefeller, who was accused of this, uh, didn't, didn't try this because it would have been foolish to lose money on purpose for decades, which he did. He, dro- he dropped. He made his money by dropping the price of refined petroleum products for 50 years. What kind of businessman would think I'm going to make a killing if I lose money on purpose for decades, and then someday I'm going to make money? And one thing you can say about Rockefeller, he was no fool when it comes to making money. And, and but he would have been a fool had he tried that, as would anybody else. Besides that, once once you uh, even if you did pull this off. There's nothing stopping new new businesses from entering the market. Once you charge $200 for that drill, I guarantee you, you'd have competitors from all over the market jumping in and charging 150 and underpricing you and then driving the price all the way back down to where it was. And so, yeah, it's a popular thing. And the international trade version of that is dumping. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, the, the government has a big, long definition of that, big, long formula. Let's say... Uh, uh, a Japanese automaker sells cars in America at a lower price than they sell them in Tokyo. That's called dumping, which is in, in, in the government always uses these nasty words, dumping. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I consider it a gift. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to charge, give, give me a great car for a lower price. Good for me. I'll take it. But it's just all that is is price competition. There's nothing nefarious about it. 
I'd like to go now to taxes and the economy. Uh, there seem to be a group of people in charge of the country right now, and this has perhaps been going on for a while, who believe that we could tax ourselves into prosperity, and it's exactly the opposite of what's going on. But why do we continue to raise taxes and think we're going to be a more prosperous nation? Well, we don't. It's, right. uh, who, who becomes more prosperous is the politicians and bureaucrats who get to spend all the money. Taxation is, uh, is always destructive of, of the economy. It always creates unemployment and, and poverty in some areas of the economy. After all, you're taking money out of the people's pockets. In, in Germany, you know, it's, a, it's an indirect tax. They, they've driven up the price of electricity because they've gone way down the road to uh, windmills and solar panels and all that stuff for electricity. And the electricity prices have quadrupled. And that's essentially a tax. It's an implicit tax on electricity because of what they've done. And the poorest of the poor people are hurt the worst. You know, the, the people who make a very modest income, all of a sudden their electric bill is four times higher than it was two years ago. That's what taxes do. A lot of the taxes that we have, you know, with the sales tax, I pay the same sales tax here that uh, Donald Trump or Bill Gates would pay mm-hmm. on, on items that I pay sales tax on. And, and so does the poor person in the neighborhood, in the, in the town, as far as that goes. And so taxes, uh, no, we can't, we can't uh, make ourselves prosperous with taxation, but we can make Washington, D.C. prosperous. Mm. And I quote an article in my book, by the way, from the Washingtonian magazine. It had a, the title of something like, how did we ever get so wealthy here in Washington, D.C.? And they talked about streets paved with gold and where, where everybody there, the average income is like uh, at least a million dollars a year. And there are some neighborhoods where people are tycoon rich who make more than fifty million a year. Well, yeah, that's that's what taxes do for you. And so I say in the book that uh, to the Washington establishment, tax cuts are to the Washington establishment what a Christian cross is to Dracula. They, it's uh, you know, they 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 shudder and they they want to run away from the thought of cutting taxes and letting us keep more of our money. I guess the million-dollar question is, what is the right amount of taxation? How's that determined in a free economic market? And also, what is the right system? We've heard flat tax, fair tax, consumption tax, all these proposals, certainly not what we have now. That, that's got to be the worst choice or one of them. Well, we have sort of unlimited government going now. We, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the original idea was we have these constitutional functions of government. And, you know, until the year 1913, the constitutional functions of government were, were financed almost entirely by tariffs on imports of about between 10 and 20 percent on imported goods. And that made enough money to pay for all the constitutional functions of government. But I think most Americans don't know that we didn't have an income tax until the year 1913. Mm-hmm. That was appropriate for, for all those years, just tariffs and a few excise taxes and a few sin taxes on alcohol and tobacco and things like that. But now we've gone into this regime of, of you know, virtually unlimited government. And of course, the Federal Reserve Board, which is basically legalized counterfeiting, they, they print money. They've come up with a new theory to justify print, just printing money. Like as it's, I call it the money grows on trees after all theory, but they call it modern monetary theory. And it, it simply says that the government can just print up as much money and, and spend as much as it wants with no negative consequences. But that's totally ahistorical. That's not going to happen. We're going to get inflation, and we're going to get boom and bust cycles like we had with the uh, the real estate uh, bust uh, in 2008. 
That was caused by the central bank, the Federal Reserve Board, printing too much money. And with this policy of near zero interest rates, they created a bubble in real estate, the bubble burst. And we had a, a very deep recession there in, in 2008. And, you know, many thousands of people lost their jobs and their livelihoods as a result of that. And, uh, and that's an, an inflation is an implicit tax. You know, it makes the value of, the, of your money less and less valuable to you in terms of purchasing power. So it's a hidden tax. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues with Thomas J.T. Lorenzo in just a moment. Associated Press award-winning journalist, Rob Schilling. Borderhawk.news is a one-stop shop with the latest news about immigration, nationalism, and globalism. The Borderhawk staff daily curates immigration news stories and, in the fashion of the Drudge Report, updates the site with cutting-edge content and original first-class commentary. Borderhawk.news highlights national and international media reports, tweets and nuggets buried in local news blurbs, polls, video clips, and policy research. Borderhawk is pro-legal immigration, pro-rule of law, but against an unsecure border as countless Americans have suffered violence at the hands of criminal illegal aliens. And an increasing number of Americans are concerned about how mass migration affects their daily life. Borderhawk.news will remain on the forefront of the immigration issue with a buffet of info to read, evaluate, and share. Bookmark Borderhawk.news. Add them on social media at News on Twitter. Get your fix online at shillingshow.com. The book is The Politically Incorrect Guide to Economics, a brand new book. The best-selling author, Tom DiLorenzo, joins us here on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. This one is so important, and I don't think there's any contrary voices in the in the market of discussion that are being heard across the country. This is government price controls. I want to start off with anti-gouging laws because we have it here in Virginia. They're constantly touting it from a Republican establishment government that this is a good thing, that we need to protect people from gouging. Would you address that? Yeah, it's very foolish. You know, first of all, it's arbitrary. You know, what is gouging? I mean, that's it's some politician's whim that says what's gouging. But it usually comes into play when there's a, you know, a hurricane or some sort of natural disaster yes. that, that disrupts everything. The power goes out. All of a sudden, uh, people need uh, you know water. You can't get bottled water if the power if the power plant goes out. Something like that. And so what typically happens with something like that, you know, the, uh, the supply of water, I'm using water, my example, goes down because people buy it all up. Or the same thing might happen with, you know, lumber at Home Depot during after a hurricane blows through and creates damage in a part of a state. Supply and demand tell you uh, there's going to be a big demand for that stuff in, in anticipation of the hurricane. And then especially after the hurricane, people need lumber board up their, the damaged houses, and they won't need water because the power plant is up. And so the increased demand and decreased supply will push the price up. And so then what's going to happen is since the price is up, it gives an incentive for people who produce lumber and produce water to rush to Virginia and, and, and supply more lumber and more water because the price is up for a while, and and they will. And you, you read stories of People going from uh, you know, another state and loading up U-Haul trucks with water and things like that and going driving down to you know, the coast of Virginia where the hurricane blew through and, and selling the water because people want the water. If you, the government has an anti-price gouging law that says 
Well, yeah, the bottle of water sells normally for a dollar, and these guys want two dollars. But we're gonna we're gonna help people out. We're gonna say for 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 right now, you can only charge no more than a dollar, or maybe even less than a dollar. Well, that takes the profitability out of coming, you know, going through all the the ordeal of running a, a tractor trailer truck and filling it up with cases of water and driving it down to Virginia to supply the people on the coast of Virginia with with water. And so you so you yeah, you have lower prices but no supply. You have no lumber and you have no water. And that's that's typically what happens with these anti price gouging laws. And the politicians pass them because it sounds good. They can pat themselves on the back, you know, we will protect you, but they're not protecting you. They're they're guaranteeing that you're gonna have to go without these things in the case of an emergency. I'd like to go from water to milk. And I remember as a kid watching the television news and seeing farmers dumping milk. And I believe now looking in retrospect that this was uh, some sort of a commercial in essence for price supports, which I think they had to enable in order that they didn't dump the milk anymore. Would you talk about price supports and also price controls on the upper side of pricing? Price supports or uh, price floors, they're sometimes called, the, uh, that's part of my chapter on the, the worst economic idea in the world, which is letting politicians determine prices. Well, in agriculture, it, it's simply special interest politics. You know, a relatively small group of farmers, you know, mostly corporate farms these days, get together and they lobby Washington to pass a law uh, pushing up the price of their soybeans or, or their corn or whatever they're, they're selling. And of course, that makes uh, food more expensive to everybody, and it hurts the poor people the most because, for the same reason that a, a tax, a sales tax, is regressive, and that uh, you know a millionaire can afford to pay a little more for, for bread or meat and things, but people with modest incomes, it hurts them a lot more. And it's simply a way of buying votes and campaign contributions from a, a very well-organized special interest group, the farm lobby. And that's why we have these price supports. Um, I tell a story in one of my articles. of uh, There was a USA Today article once and had a picture of a man in Texas who was a cotton farmer. There's a large underground aquifer in West Texas and, and enables them to grow cotton there. And there's a law that was passed that said if the price of cotton per pound ever goes below a certain level, I forget what it was, I think it was 85 cents, then the government will compensate cotton farmers the difference between the actual price that they can get on the market and 85 cents. And in that year, the actual price was 35 cents. Mm-hmm. They had a big, big crop year for cotton. And so the government said for every pound of cotton that you sold, the government would reimburse you the difference between 35 and 85 cents. And this man in the USA Today uh, newspaper had a big smile on his face because he just got a check for $400,000 from the government for doing nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, do not, he sold his cotton and just because of this law, he got 400 grand, and and, that, and that's and I'm sure he he kicked back a good bit of that to his local congressman and made the maximum contribution to the local congressman and senator who was responsible for maintaining this law. And we have hundreds and hundreds of laws just like that that rip off and plunder the average person because the average person one doesn't know that that's why his blue jeans are more expensive because the cotton that goes into them are price supported. And even if he did, what can he do? He has nothing to do about it. You'd have to organize a political coalition to get Congress to rescind this law. And that's not likely to happen. 
And when the government steps in, like our Senator Tim Kaine and Mark Warner sent out a press release telling us that they're now going to control the prices that people pay for medication and health insurance, uh, when the government comes in and limits prices on the top end, what happens to the quality of the service and the availability of service? It usually uh, reduces it. You know, the most famous example among economists is rent control. When governments hold down the price of our apartment rentals, landlords respond by not spending any money on maintenance, and so the, the uh, quality deteriorates. And if you're talking about drugs, too, you know, there's a tremendous amount of money that goes into research and development of drugs because they have to jump through hundreds of hoops to get the Food and Drug Administration to okay uh, a drug. And, and that's very, very expensive. And so if you hold down the price of arbitrarily, uh, well, it depends on how much you hold. I mean, if you hold it down one half of 1%, that's not going to make any difference. But if it's 50% or 75%, then you're talking real money. And that'll make there'll be less research and development on drugs, fewer drugs. And then therefore, in the end, it'll be more expensive and, and less supply, less available. And, you know, the drugs that could be life-saving drugs won't be a uh, won't exist uh, as far as that goes. So there's that effect also. I'd like to talk finally about public utility monopolies. And we had an experiment here in Virginia some years ago where they deregulated the electricity market and then they got cold feet and turned around almost immediately and went back to the old system. What should be done about that, if anything? And would we be better off under an open utility system? Yeah, competition is always better. You know, nowadays, especially with things like electricity, you can buy electricity from all over the country and even from Canada with the, with the, uh, the grid. And it's more competitive than it was 100 years ago. But the, the, the so-called natural monopolies, there's nothing natural about them. They were, they were, there, was, there used to be competition with telephone services. I'm talking 100 years ago. Electricity, water supply. But the government's granted uh, monopolies to all these companies and as far as I can tell, the very first one in electricity was in Baltimore, what is now Baltimore Gas and Electric. Uh, it was called something else then. This is like turn of the 20th century. They went to the state legislature and said, we we're tired of struggling with all this competition. And so in return for a 25-year monopoly on electricity, we will pay you, you the, the state of Maryland, $25,000 a year. This is in the you know, turn of the 20th century and 3% of all dividends that we make. And so it was basically a way of uh, an implicit tax, a way of sort of a, a tax of the people of Maryland by creating a monopoly. And that all and cities and, and, and states all over the country did the same thing. So that's how these came into being. It was government regulation that created these in the first place. We could use competition. Some states have, are more competitive than others. So I was living in Maryland in the early 2000s when the Maryland legislature had passed a so-called deregulation law, which actually was a re-regulation <laughs> law. They, they said, yeah, we're going to allow, we're going to invite competition in. Good. It'll be very good. You know, Duke Power and other these big companies were, were eager to supply electricity in competition with Baltimore Gas and Electric. And then, but then they said, this was the year 2000. They said, but we're going to set the price at the 1996 level, which was much, much lower than it was in 2000. So come on in and compete. Mm -hmm. And so all these other companies said, no way, the government is controlling the price. It's not going to make it profitable. And so the politicians wanted to call it a deregulation law because that was because the public had finally caught on that they were being subjected to a government uh, run monopoly. 
with Baltimore Gas and Electric, but they didn't want to give up the support, the the campaign money support from Baltimore Gas and Electric. And so they, they pulled a fast one. They called it a deregulation law, but then regulated the price. And but but we need they, if they had just stuck with the first part and said open bidding, let anybody in the country bid, and we'll take the lowest bid. And if the quality goes down, we'll we'll reopen the bidding and have somebody else give us electricity. And they can do that with water supply. There, there are cities all over the place that have done that with water supply. There are water big water companies that do a very good job. Private companies, and and you know you can you can allow the local government water company to compete you know they can put in a bid too and let them compete and see who does the best job and uh, if your if your objective is to do the best thing for the uh, for the citizens at the lowest price that's the way to do it the book is the politically incorrect guide to economics by tom DiLorenzo. and tom if people want to get a copy of your book or they want to follow your work online tell us how please well, they can get it on Amazon.com, BooksAmillion.com, or BarnesandNoble.com. Amazon is the big 3,000-pound gorilla in book sales these days. And I'm a columnist for LewRockwell.com. That's a man's name, L-E-W, Rockwell.com. And I have several hundred articles in the archives there over the years, if anyone wants to read more. And I also have an Amazon page that lists several of my books. There's a lot of wisdom in this book, and it's a very, very well-written guide to economics. Thomas J. DiLorenzo, thanks for joining us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. You're very welcome. That concludes another edition of the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com, where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time.